0: to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, it is my honor and pleasure to welcome Mr. Jose Oliva. He is the Associate Director of the Food Chain Workers Alliance. Before... Going to the Food Chain Workers Alliance, he founded the Chicago Interfaith Workers Center and then became the coordinator of the Interfaith Workers' Justice National Workers' Centers Network. He has a long history of working for worker justice, including leadership roles at the Restaurant Opportunities Center United. The Food Chain Workers Alliance is a coalition of a worker-based organization whose members plant harvest, process, pack, transport, prepare, serve, and sell food, and they organize to improve wages and working conditions for all workers along the food chain. The Alliance works together to build a more sustainable food system that respects workers' rights based on the principles of social, environmental, and racial justice in which everyone has access to healthy and affordable food. I had the pleasure of hearing Mr. Oliva speak in Detroit, spring of 2014, and he spoke about what it was like to be a food service worker, and I thought, I need to have Mr. Oliva on Food Sleuth Radio. So welcome, Mr. Oliva. It's wonderful to have you.
1: Oh, Melinda, thank you so much. It is uh, absolutely my pleasure to be on on your show.
0: Well, I thought it was really yeah. interesting When you spoke on the panel, you explained that there were 30 million or close to 30 million food system workers. And then just recently you told me that 50% of Americans have worked in a food service operation or a restaurant at some point in their lives. Is that right?
1: That's correct. It's a huge industry and a growing industry here in the United States both on the service end of the spectrum which obviously has the bulk of the workers in that system but also as you mentioned in the introduction right it really has become the new major thrust of jobs in the United States right so i often when i talk about the food system i hark back to the days of the auto industry in this country when the auto industry was the largest private sector employer in the United States, and the effect that the auto manufacturing sector had on the overall economy. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, when it first started, the auto industry was actually not a very good place to work. It wasn't until the sit-down strikes in Detroit of the 1920s and 30s that we began to see conditions and wages in the auto industry uh, increase. And so, steadily, in the 1940s and 50s, workers in the manufacturing sector as a whole, not just in the auto sector, because of the fights that they launched in the 20s and 30s, achieved a fairly good standard of wages and conditions in their industry. And that lasted for a good several decades till the flight of manufacturing. Beginning in the 1970s, and obviously the collapse of the manufacturing sector that, that followed in the, in the early 2000s led to the, a, a vacuum of jobs that was filled very quickly by the food service industry and by the food sector as a whole. And now, you know, the jobs are almost at the 30 million mark right now in the sector, making it by far the largest private sector employer in the United States. The key difference between the auto industry and the food industry is that the auto industry at its heyday had livable wages, good working conditions, and benefits. And the food sector as a whole, and especially in the food service sector, we have no such thing, right? The average wages are just below $9 an hour some of the the biggest sector of the food industry, the restaurant industry, uh, has a sub-minimum wage of $2.13 an hour, so it's even lower than the regular minimum wage, right? So many servers in the restaurant industry actually get paychecks of zero dollars. And so <laughs> I could go on works? and on and tell you all about the horrors of the food industry, but the, the good news is that There are organizations out there who are fighting to improve conditions and to increase wages because they know that just like in the case of the auto industry, the only way to recreate the middle class of this country is to actually improve wages, improve conditions in the biggest private sector employers so that it could have a pull effect on the overall economy rather than a push effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's what the Food Workers Alliance is doing. It's bringing together all of those organizations so that we together can have a broad strategy of how the food system as a whole can have better jobs, better conditions, which is directly related to better food, right? If workers are able to afford good food, that's what will become more available in the market because that's where the demand will be. And so wages are the key to better food. <laughs> the better the wages are that workers are paid, the more that they're going to be able to afford good food, the more that that's going to become a demand on the market.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up, Stoleva. I too agree that wages are at the heart of better health overall, but I like the way you describe the need for better wages for better food, and I have to ask you one question. So if a server is making $2.13 an hour, how is it possible that they don't have a paycheck, and are the employers required, if they don't make up uh, the difference between the restaurant wage and the minimum wage, are the restaurant owners then required to make up the difference for their workers? I was under the impression that they were, but please correct me if I'm wrong.
1: Well, so here's the gaps in, in the way that the system is set up. First of all, there are about 300 or so DOL investigators in the country. Department um, of Labor. Department of Labor, I'm sorry. That's okay for approximately 900,000 eating and drinking establishments. So, impossible, right? Just the, the math of that is impossible for every single Department of Labor investigator to see, to even understand a pattern, for instance, that might be taking place in a particular sector, let alone investigate and find each one of the places that are breaking the law actually identify them,
0: right? Yeah.
1: So what we end up with is a lawless situation where, sure, the law says that the employer is supposed to make up the difference, but employers know that the chances are very, very slim that they would ever get caught if they don't make up that difference. So workers, servers, especially in the situation, know that they're living off tips. As a matter of fact, that's one of the campaigns that Rock the Restaurant Opportunity Center, is working on right now is a campaign called Living Off Tips. You could actually go to that website, livingoftips.com. And part of what we've uncovered as we began to look into sort of the legal infrastructure of this is that it was the actual National Restaurant Association's or as I like to call it, the other evil NRA, it was them who set up this infrastructure to begin with. And their logic was, well, you know, customers can make up the difference, right, when they tip. So if a tipped employee is getting $2.13, but they're making an additional $10 an hour on tips, then that's not only enough, it's a livable wage, technically. Right. Now, the reality is that that might be the case for some servers who might be working in a fancy downtown restaurant somewhere, but the vast majority of servers don't work in those restaurants. The vast majority of servers are working midnight shifts at IHOP, right, where Mm -hmm. you get three or four tables at the most during your entire six- or seven-hour shift, and so what you end up with is a sub minimum wage that not only is subsidized by consumers, but it is actually the product of and engineered by the restaurant industry and the product of the restaurant industry's power in Washington D C. Mm-hmm. So we're you know, we we're, we're hopeful that restaurant workers together with farm workers together with warehouse workers together with all of the other workers in the food system can identify these loopholes, bring them to light, and, of course, change some of the legal infrastructure, some of the laws that exist in this country so that we have a more fair distribution of wealth, which is what the bottom line of all of this is, right? It's, it's really about who in the 1% of the folks who own the restaurant corporations like the Darden Corporation or who own the large agro-industrial companies like Monsanto, they control oftentimes the way that the legal infrastructure functions in this country.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. I know that the National Restaurant Association consistently lobbies in Washington against livable wage legislation, which hurts families. You know, on the one hand, we say that we support children and we want, to, we want to protect families, but if we really wanted to protect families, we'd want to provide a livable wage so that people could afford healthy food and uh Well, the
1: interesting thing, Melinda, sorry to interrupt, but no. the interesting thing about these companies like GARDEN and Monsanto and the National Restaurant Association is that they're also the biggest players on things like... Organics, for instance, or healthy food, or there's a ton of money that got poured into the campaign in California that ultimately defeated the
0: the right to know,
1: the right to know, the right to know
0: legislation, the GMO labels. That's right. It's very interesting to see who were the the big funders. They're the same company,
1: so so they're not only on the wrong side of the labor end of the spectrum, they're also on the wrong side on many of the other health-related and environmentally-related pieces of legislation that would make not just the working environment better for workers, but but it would make the living environment better for all of us.
0: Yeah. You know, Mr. Oliva, one of the stories that I thought was so interesting when you were on the panel in Detroit had to do with your own experience and how Mm. you came to this work. And you used to work at a Red Lobster, is that correct? (laughs)
1: Yeah, so I came to this country from Guatemala back in uh, 1985. And my mom, one of the, she was a schoolteacher in Guatemala, which is where we had to leave. But one of the first jobs that she got was in a restaurant. And I remember looking when we went to pick her up with my dad, I remember looking into the restaurant and thinking, wow, that's a really cool place to work, right? The, the energy, the dynamism, everything about it just attracted me. So, my first job was actually in the fast food sector of the industry, and then when I graduated college, I started working at Red Lobster. And, you know, my experience, I think, was very similar to what a lot of other people experience in the industry, which is wage theft. You know, I remember my very first paycheck or non paycheck, right, was less than $40, and the only reason that I got was because I was being paid a training wage. My second paycheck was zero, zero dollars. And that's, you know, because I was a server and they don't, (laughs) you don't make any money as a server, right? It all goes to taxes. And so all of your money literally comes out from tips. And that was a shock to me. I couldn't believe it. And I didn't understand how other servers did it, how people could survive just from tips. And so I started asking around and people started telling me that very truthfully that they would eat food as much as they could at work so that they didn't have to buy food and they would take home food. And then people started realizing that the food that they were eating was actually making them sick, that it was giving them you know that it just, it's just—it's bad food, right? It's fried. It's yes, as a dietitian,
0: <laughs> I advise against eating fast and processed food. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And that's and that's the stuff that people were eating because that's all they, you know, literally that's all they could eat. Yeah. And so, you know, it's it, it was a shocking experience. I remember coming home one day and telling my mother about my experience in in the industry. And she said, she said that she tried to warn me. She said, I, I tried to tell you how hard it was. You were too illusioned with, with the industry already, so I didn't want to de-inflate you, but I thought that it would have been better if you didn't go into the industry. And then she went on to tell me about a ton of things that I had no idea had happened to her. Sexual harassment intimidation by the part of the employer, you know, if if she said anything to my dad that, you know, she would be fired immediately and that he would call immigration because he knew that her document status wasn't right. You know, it was just a, a series of stories that I had never heard before that informed me about the industry in ways that I... I had no idea, right? And, And sure enough, a lot of the things that she was telling me began to manifest themselves in my workplace, not necessarily directly with me, but with the folks around me, right? I had a friend who worked the same shift that I did, and she was called into the manager's office, and she came out about half an hour later and was very upset and just went in the uh, went to pick up her jacket in the back and then and stormed out i followed her out of the building and asked her what happened and she said that the uh, manager literally attempted to rape her and she the only thing that stopped him was that someone rang the bell for there they had a little bell in the back somebody rang the bell so that they could come in and he had to stop
0: Let me just take one moment, Mr. Oliva. Listeners, Mm -hmm. if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Mr. Jose Oliva. He is the Associate Director for the Food Chain Workers Alliance, which is a coalition of worker-based organizations whose members plant, harvest, process, pack, transport, prepare, serve, and sell food, and they organize to improve wages and working conditions for all workers along the food chain. And I am... Very glad that you are revealing some of the dark secrets that happen behind, there's a division, right? There are the people who are sitting in the restaurant and they're eating their food, and then there's a whole parallel world that's going on behind those kitchen doors. So it's shocking, but it's really important, I think, for those of us to understand some of the injustices that happen in, specifically, you're talking now about the restaurant industry, but surely we we know they exist among yeah. farm workers as well. Now, I want to ask you a question, and that has to do with access to health care. It's so important, of course, that we not report to work sick, especially when we're handling another person's food. Do most people who work in the food chain have access to health benefits. Like what happened, your experience was with Red Lobster. If you were ill one day, did you have health insurance through Red Lobster?
1: (laughs) No, no, no. No health insurance, no paid sick days. If you got sick and you were very ill, what you would do is you would call uh, your coworkers and you would find someone to cover your shift and you would swap shifts with that person. Mm -hmm. If you weren't sick enough that uh, you had to stay in bed, you would just go to work sick, which is what most people continue to do today, right? There are only nine municipalities and one state that requires paid sick days as a law. Uh, Connecticut is that one state, and, you know, the nine cities are very in size, but uh, New York is the biggest one. But it's not a national law. It's not a federal law. And so what we end up with is this patchwork of places that are better <laughs> for diners and for workers yeah. and places that are not. Because it's not, it takes very little imagination to conclude what the outcome is, especially in terms of uh, contagious diseases, when you have sick workers serving, preparing, Etc. The food that you're eating, and so and it's not the worker's fault, right? I really want to stress that it is not the worker's fault. I I had to go to work sick a couple of times, and it wasn't because I wanted to. It was because I had no choice. It was because I was living off tips, and if I didn't go to work, I didn't get paid. I had no money to pay the rent. I had no money to pay the bills, mm-hmm. and so and so I just could not afford to stay home. So paid sick days legislation really is the solution to that. That's another thing that the National Restaurant Association has been opposing feverishly. They've spent millions of dollars lobbying members of Congress and and state legislators to oppose any paid sick days legislation. As a matter of fact, it's because of them that paid sick days legislation has failed in a number of municipalities where it's been proposed. But that's one solution. I mean, clearly there's other parts of the food system where I think it's also important to have not just paid sick days, but access to health care. So one very clear part of the food system where this is especially important is in distribution. Folks who are actually taking the food from the farms and packaging it and sending it to grocery stores and or restaurants work primarily through day labor agencies, through these temp agencies that don't provide any benefits at all. And so if someone shows up to work and they are injured or they're sick, they're sent to work by this temp agency and the company who's actually hiring the temp agency is not and not only are they not responsible for the worker, they're not legally liable they 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 have no liability if that worker is injured on the job or is ill on the job and and uh infects the produce or the food that they are handling that is no longer the employer's responsibility it becomes this temp agency's responsibility, and the temp agencies come and go right so they yeah uh, can fire the temp agency because of that, right? If somebody complains and hire another temp agency, and it could be the same owner <laughs> for both temp agencies. They just have different names for the agencies. And so these are huge things. There's an organization here in Chicago called Warehouse Workers for Justice that does amazing work bringing warehouse workers. They're also a member of the Food Chain Workers Alliance bringing workers from that industry together to um, improve wages and conditions. Uh, They won uh, in one of the warehouses this last winter when we were having the polar vortex. They were being asked to go to work even though there were no doors in their warehouse, and so it was 40 degrees below zero inside the warehouse. They were being asked to come to work still, People got frostbite and they finally had enough and organized themselves and won a heater placed inside the, inside the warehouse. So that, you know, it's, there's plenty of examples of how if you come together with, with other, uh, folks in your sector, whether that's, you know, other workers or whether that's folks in your community to demand better food, that it can be done, right? That there are ways to fight back and, and, Win better conditions for all of us.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Mr. Oliva, what I would like to know is since you have come together as a coalition, you know, all of these different worker based organizations coming together, do you find that you have been more successful with this solidarity approach in terms of changing policies for the better?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think we've done a couple of things that have changed the landscape of food worker organizing. One thing that we've done is that we have created a fair amount of awareness in the food movement. So, you know, before we came on the scene, I think uh, most folks that thought and worked around food thought about three things, right? What does food do to me in terms of my health, my body? What does food do to the environment um, in terms of chemicals, and toxins that were dumped into the environment, and what does food do to our communities in terms of access, in terms of uh, prices, etc? And very few people were thinking about or talking about what does food do to workers, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so how are the people who are actually making the food, how are they treated, what effect does that have on the food itself, yeah. So. Are people who make our food or who produce our food or who grow our food, if they're treated badly, does that go into our food? And of course, the answer is yes, right? So from one end of the spectrum to the other, right? Whether it's farm workers or restaurant workers, if workers are paid better, they treat the food better, they are actually more careful with the food. They have a sense of pride in their work. If they are paid badly and treated badly, they can care very little about not just the food, but the job itself, right? It can become just sort of a an exercise in futility because you're barely making ends meet as it is. Yeah. And so that consciousness, the, the awareness of understanding that workers are part of our food system. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is one huge accomplishment that the Food Chain Workers Alliance has been able to achieve. We still have a long way to go. I'm not saying we've done it. (laughs) I do think we've accomplished it inside of the food movement, but the food movement itself has still a long way to go before we can actually inform, educate, and actually mobilize the larger public to take action so that we can have a food system that is truly sustainable, that's not just sustainable for one of those four segments, but that is actually sustainable for the environment, for workers, for communities, and for the individual health of each one of us.
0: Well, I want to thank you very much for being my guest and sharing some of your stories, not only about your own experience, but about the work that the Food Chain Workers Alliance does. And I'm assuming that the website has information for listeners if they want to join. Are there legislative or action alerts that we can take part in to stay informed? Absolutely.
1: You could go on foodchainworkers.org and... Sign up for our uh, email list, and you can you will be getting uh, action alerts. Uh, everything from you know, right now we have an action alert on banana workers in Guatemala. We also will have a national day of action on July 24th around the minimum wage, and so we hope that your listeners can join us and visit our website, sign up for our email alerts, and become active in this movement.
0: Thank you so much. Listeners, we have been speaking with Mr. Jose Oliva. He is the Associate Director of the Food Chain Workers Alliance based in Chicago, Illinois. The Food Chain Workers Alliance is a coalition of worker-based organizations whose members plant, harvest, process, pack, transport, prepare, serve, and sell food. And they organize to improve wages and working conditions for all workers along the food chain. And I encourage you to go to the website, that's foodchainworkers.org, to find out how we can support each other in the food system. System. Just a reminder that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hamelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to thank you, Mr. Oliva, for being at the heart of the food revolution movement. Thank you so much. Thank you, Melinda. Appreciate it.